we take this second to acknowledge how great you truly are. Lord, as we stand before you, we realize that you are the beginning and the end. That you have all power. You have all knowledge. You have all might. Father, you are great. And as we stand here in your presence, Lord, I just pray that we can put ourselves aside. God, in your greatness, help us to see you. Father, may your spirit be here. May it be in us. When he whispers, Lord, let us hear it. Let us focus on your word. And let us know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Have you ever been to New York City? It's a pretty big place. Pretty amazing things happen there. I got the opportunity to go back when I was in high school. It was our grade 12 year, and I was able to go with a bunch of my friends in a school trip. And it was an amazing place to be a teenager. It was an amazing place to just experience. One of the things that marked that experience was the guys that would line up outside of our hotel and sell us stuff. And there's a lot of stuff to buy, let me tell you. And being the influential teenagers that we were, we bought all kinds of things, thinking that we were getting smashing great deals on some quality items. Well, one time, my friend and I, his name was Chris, we were walking along, and a guy came running up to us, and he said, hey man, quick, 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 you need to buy this. And he pushed a watch into my friend's face. And my, my friend's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I just bought this. See, here's the receipt. And you need to buy it, you need to buy it really quick. I'll give you a great deal. All of a sudden, my friend wound up buying the watch. Of course, you know, we, as the guy that left, we like, we just bought stolen stuff. You know, we were all really excited. Uh, I know, we were teenagers. Just don't get hung up on the morals of it for, for right now. Uh, he was all really excited. And I went back to the hotel, and another guy was standing in front of the hotel. He said, hey, man, come on, come on. I've got all these watches here to buy. And I wanted to be cool with my friends, so I bought a watch, too. And we were all, like, really excited. We had these watches, you know. And mine, mine was Swatch. Um, which is an actual company and all that stuff before you get all... Uh, anyway, later on when we were back home, I took my watch into the jewelers to see if it was real or not. Because I walked up to the, the window, and there, sure enough, was the swatches, and, and like mine looked exactly like the one that was there. And I thought, for sure, I had scored. And so I went inside, and I went to the jeweler, and I was all excited, and, and he, took, he took the watch, and he didn't even have to blink. He was like, nope. And handed it back to me. I said, whoa, wait a second. No, 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 this is real. And he looked at it and said, no, this isn't real. And he looked, he's like, how could you even compare this to what we have in the window? He's like, look, the face, it's plastic. This watch doesn't make plastic anything. He said, look at this metal. This is cheap. And he just proceeded to break the watch in pieces and right before me. It was this cheap plastic knockoff of a real watch. It matched the cheap plastic knockoff jokelies that I had in my bag. It matched the cheap plastic knockoff everythings that we bought from those street vendors in New York City. The trouble is, we live in a cheap plastic world, don't we? Fake is everywhere. Think about reality television for a moment. Do you know most episodes of reality TV have more writers than the average sitcom does? I'm not joking. Watch the credits sometime. It's crazy. We own a fake Christmas tree. Then there's, there's people in the world that are just fake, right? If you flip on the news and you watch the politicians, and we, we don't even argue anymore. We don't even pretend anymore. We know that they're being fake.
standing there saying, yes, I promise to give you this, I promise to give you that, I'll fix everything, I can change the world. No, you can't. We know that they aren't going to do anything about the stuff that they're going to say, at least not to the extent that they say that they're going to, to do it. And yet, there they stand. They're fake. It's fake. We have so many fakes, I don't even need to go through the list. But it's a very, very long list. So let me ask you this. In this world of fakes and cheap knockoffs, in this plastic world, how is your faith? Does it look kind of cheap and plastic on the outside? Is it as fake as that pair of jokies that I bought? Well, this plastic world has existed for some time. In fact, we can go all the way back to Luke chapter 3, and we will see a plastic world. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, I always mispronounce that guy's name, so if you know it and I don't, that's cool, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All right, there's a lot of names, a lot of meaningless places there for you. But here's the thing. The world that Jesus was coming into to do his thing, this world was marked by being fake. It was a plastic world. You see, it was a world that was divided amongst itself. Of course, we had the Romans that were in charge of everything. And so they ruled every region by sending a regional governor to be there. That's Pontius Pilate. So he's not really the ruler of those people. He wasn't elected. He wasn't groomed to be the leader there. He was simply assigned to be there. Maybe he wanted to. Maybe he didn't. He was a fake leader. Now... Pontius Pilate had a job, and that was to keep the locals in line. His job was to make sure that that area would send all the proper amount of gold and all the taxes and everything that they were supposed to send over to Rome. He was also supposed to keep the peace. That was his job. Keep down rebellion. This is no easy task. Because as you might guess, people don't like to be subjugated very much. And so Rome gave him someone else to work with. Rome had this habit of installing puppet governments. And these people would be people selected by Rome. They would be of the same ethnicity of the people that they were governing. So that the people could look and say, ah, see, our leader is one of us. But this Herod, this, this Tetrarch, now this isn't Herod, the same Herod that was around when Jesus was born. This is his son. And they divvied up Herod's kingdom, that original Herod from Jesus' birth, amongst his sons. And so that list that we had there, that was all of Herod's sons ruling in the different areas of Judea because they couldn't agree on who was going to rule all of it. And let me tell you, the people didn't like this Herod any more than they liked the last one. Because he wasn't one of them. He was sort of one of them, but he was more from Rome. He was a fake leader. And then we had the religious leaders. We had two names there. We had Annas and Caiaphas. They were both the high priest. Do you notice how it said that? If you go back in scripture, it tells us that only one person can be high priest at a time. So something's going on here. 
And if we do a little bit of digging, we discover that Annas was the high priest years before. And Annas became so powerful that he decided who his successor was going to be, and that was his son-in-law named Caiaphas. But don't fool yourselves. Caiaphas held very little real power. Annas was the one that was in control of everything. In fact, one of the commentaries that I was reading says that Annas was kind of like a mafia don. He ruled the temple and oversaw everything that happened. Later on, when Jesus is brought to trial, he doesn't go before the, the temple as he's supposed to. He's brought before Annas. And then he's brought before Caiaphas after Annas decides what to do with him. This is a power-hungry man that is ruling over the religion of Israel. It's fake. It's plastic. It's a facade. And this is the world that Jesus is coming into. People are feeling abandoned. They're feeling neglected. They're frustrated. They're fed up. They felt that God was distant and inactive. And rebellion was everywhere. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like the world that we live in today. The trouble was, they lived in a plastic world. Verse 3. He. Now, this is John. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed that. The word of God didn't come to any of those other leaders. The word of God came to this guy, John. And he goes off into the wilderness. And he went into the country all around the Jordan, which is a river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then it goes on to quote Isaiah, saying that this was prophesied about many, many years ago, that this was supposed to happen. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Now that's something to say to a crowd that's coming to see you, right? I mean, if hundreds of people just suddenly started flooding into the church just to hear me speak, I probably wouldn't lead with, You brood of vipers. That just doesn't sound right. But he's got a very clear point. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors, and we spent a lot of time talking about the evils that the tax collectors used to do in those times. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. You see, what John is calling people to do, He's calling people to leave the fake, plastic faith that their leaders continually perpetuate. He says, don't be like those guys. Don't, don't have a fake faith. Be real. Be the genuine article. What he does is he says, I need you to repent from that. Now, repentance is a big word. Repentance simply means to turn away from what you were doing and do what the opposite is. That's what repentance is. 
And in this case, we're talking about going from something that is fake and wrong to doing something that is genuine and good. Now, repentance is very, very important. But it's not everything. You know, when I was eight years old, I lived in a very little town called Tabor, Alberta. They're on the map because of corn and sugar beets. That's why they're there. In fact, they're, they're called the corn capital of Canada, yet they have a sugar beet on the flag that looks like a carrot. I don't know. It's weird. Anyway, when I was eight years old, uh, I was playing with some of my friends. Their names were Alex and DJ, and they lived down the street from me. And I loved going over to their house because, you see, they had all the stuff. Right? They had an Nintendo. This was back in the 80s, by the way. So, you know, when I reference some things, just keep in mind that this was, you know, 1980s. Um, they had a Nintendo system that we didn't have. They had all the cool toys. They had really great bikes that I didn't have. And their parents rarely supervised them, which I didn't have. So I went over to their place, and we were messing around, you know, and they said, hey, let's go to 7-Eleven, let's get some Slurpees. If you've never had a Slurpee, next time you're in the West, get one. It is... Uh, anyway, so we went to go get some Slurpees. And when we got to the store, we came into the front, and there before us was the largest bin of Bubblicious Bubblegum that I have ever seen in my life. It was huge. And as an eight-year-old, that was like, oh, you know, I just wanted that. My friends stood there. They wanted it, too. And my friend said something to me that, you know, should have been a clue to me that they might not have been a good influence. They said, Jim, we're going to steal some of that. You better steal some too, or we're not going to be your friend anymore. I was eight years old. I was shy and influential. And I didn't want to lose my two friends, even though they weren't really friends. So I kind of got all nervous, and I waited. And then when the clerk turned around and looked the other way, I quickly snatched some, and I stuck in my waistband. And I went off, and I went and got a Slurpee so that I looked natural, as if I belonged in the store. Now, my friends weren't nearly so clever, nor were they so sneaky. They just greedily reached in and grabbed a bunch and just started shoving them in their pockets. They didn't even care that the guy was standing there watching them. He got so mad, he jumped over the counter, and he came over and he grabbed the two of them, and he started shaking them. And he was trying to get the candy. Now, remember, this is the 80s. You know, people didn't sue and stuff like that back then, so he's like, you know, ripping into them, and he's shaking them around, and the candy's like, going as their shirts are coming, you know. And he's getting mad, and he's like swearing at them, and he's yelling at them. And I come around the corner with my Slurpee, and I see what's going on, and I just start crying. It's like, I don't, I don't know, I think this guy's going to like bat me around, and, and he looks at me, and he yells at me, he's like, are you stealing too? Now, being in the 80s, my jeans were quite tight, and I, I went, I was like, look, no, there's nothing in my pockets, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent, please, please, no. And so he accepted that, I guess, and he started screaming at them again, saying, I'm going to call your parents. Now, this is a small town. Okay. He knew who their parents were. My parents, being strict, didn't let me go to 7-Eleven very often, so he didn't know who my parents were. So he called their parents, and they got in a lot of trouble, and miracle upon miracles, they didn't call my parents. I went home with stolen gum. I didn't know what to do with it, so I stuck it in my toy box, and I covered it up. And let me tell you, after three days of having it in there, I started getting sick to my stomach. I was fearful. I was, I was so overwhelmed with guilt after stealing this gum that I was sick to my stomach. I just wanted everything to go back and be right again. I wanted to be innocent again. And so I, I walked out to my mom. 
Uh, I was missing school because, like, I'm just, you know, doing that. And, and I came up to my mom. I was like, Mom, I can't see you. stole a gun from the store. And she's like, what? And I confessed everything to her. And I explained to her what I had done. And my mom, being the loving, wonderful woman that she is, she grabbed me by the collar and she threw me into my bedroom. She rifled through my toy chest until she found that gun. She slammed it there. And she screamed at me for a good hour. And then she said the dreaded words, wait till your dad comes home. Now normally that's not much of a threat. But being the 80s, he came home, and I, don't normally got, I didn't normally get spanked, but he spanked me good, and then he got the belt out and went to it again. Now let me tell you, I learned my lesson that day. I really did. I don't remember ever stealing ever again. But let me ask you this question. I felt that I wanted to repent. I wanted to be innocent once again. I felt an overwhelming sense of wrongdoing, and I wanted to be innocent again. Was me confessing to my mom that I did something wrong it? Was that the end of repentance? Had I repented at that point? Was simply feeling bad about something all there was to that story? The answer is no. That's not repentance. That's just feeling bad about something. The next day, my dad brought me out. He sat me down. And he asked me how I was doing. You know, I was still, I was afraid that he was going to, you know, hit me again. And I was like, yeah, please don't spank me. He's like, no, no, that part's done. And I asked if he was still mad at me. He said, no, I'm not mad at you anymore. But I have a question for you. He said, what are you going to do about it now? What are you going to do? Have you really learned your lesson? So I went and I got the gum, and I asked him to drive me to the store, and we went, and we got the manager, and I gave the gum back, and I apologized. I offered to, to pay for gum that I didn't even want to take it home. I just said, here, I'll, I'll donate to the great cause of 7-Eleven. You know, please, please, just forgive me. And, you know, it was, it was a good moment, and the, the manager accepted, and, you know, was stern and did the good adult thing. Um, but is that true faith right there. That's repentance. Sure, I did something. I did a good action. I, I turned around. I made the situation right. But is that, is that salvation? Is that freedom from sin? Does me apologizing and taking that extra step, doing the things like John would suggest I should do, is that, does that wipe away that sin that was there? Does that make me right before God? The answer is no. And yet the people, when they were listening to John speak, when he was saying, you need to come away, you need to repent from this plastic faith, they were missing the next step, and they jumped the gun a little bit. Take a look, verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly, and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Right? He's saying all this stuff, and they're saying, you're the one that's going to save us. Because you've told us what to do. You've, you've shown us how to be genuine. And John answered them, Look, I baptized you with water. I baptized you into repentance of your sin. But one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, a big farming implement, is in his hand, and he's at the threshing floor. And to gather the wheat into his barn, to bring his people into him. 
but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Those who don't belong to him, that extra, that will be burned up. And with many other words, John extorted to the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Our baptism, the one that we have, the one that we have access to, is not a simple one of repentance. It's not saying, oh, my bad, I, I, I had all this sin in my life and now I'm going to do something else. No, we have one that is into Christ, who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Let me ask you this, have you ever thrown plastic into the fire? Have you? It doesn't last very long, does it? It pools up and melts, it sparkles and crackles with all the interesting toxic fumes that are coming off of it. And it's gone very quickly. When we are baptized into Christ, we are saying, no, I refuse to be fake. I refuse to have my sinful nature, that, that thing that's inside of us that produces all the, the cheap knockoff good works. You know, without Christ, when we go out and we do good things, it doesn't really mean a lot because it's not motivated out of love and desire for Him. And you know, there's going to be a day when he stands before us and he says, hey, what did you do with the kingdom that I gave you? What did you do with your life? What did you do with the gifts that I gave you? What did you do with the money that I gave you? What, what are you doing? What did you do? And we're going to look at him and say, well, well, when did you show up for us to do things for you? What, what, what are you talking about? And he'll say, did you ever see somebody hungry? Did you ever see somebody poor or in need? Did you ever see somebody that was thirsty, that needed some help? Anything you did for the least of these people, you did for me. That was me sitting there. And that's the question that he's going to ask. That's the test as to whether or not our faith is plastic or genuine. What are you going to do with what he's given you? You know, the time of Jesus was marked by corruption and deception. <laughs> and when Jesus points, or sorry, when John points out some of this fake plasticness that was going on to one of the rulers of the time, the ruler gets very upset and throws him into prison. Take a look. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up and threw him in prison. Later on, John's executed, simply because he had the courage to stand and say, no, no, you claim to be a person of faith. This is how people of faith live. He's thrown away, thrown in prison for him. If you're going to live a true, genuine life, if you're going to live a life of genuine faith, you're going to pay for it. Let's be clear on that. Because when, when real light gets shone on people's sin, they react very poorly to that. It's true. And we have thousands of years of history to prove that. Now, I'm not talking about running out right now and getting in people's faces and screaming at them and hitting them over, sign, over the head with picket signs and stuff like that. That's, that's nonsense. But when real 
genuine faith comes in contact with the plastic world, the plastic world is very upset. Like a collector. We're told in scripture that everything we do in secret is going to be brought into the light. We're told that our lives are going to be tested by fire. And if they stand, they stand. So let me ask you this question. Is your faith the genuine article, or is it one of plastic? You need some help identifying that? Are you concerned about being a fake? Well, let me ask you these questions. Do you have to justify the behavior that you're doing? Do you have to keep what you're doing a secret? When you do these things and someone asks you about them, do you get really defensive all of a sudden? If I stood up here and I said what you were doing to this entire crowd, would that be something that you would feel ashamed and afraid of? Here's the kicker. Do you and can you talk to God about what you're doing? See, we're supposed to come away from being fake. We're supposed to, to have that fake life put to death in Christ. And he's supposed to build us up to be a new person, a new creation. We're supposed to be the genuine article. That's what he desires of us. Who wants to be plastic when you can be real? Do you need to allow Christ to burn away some of that nonsense, some of that plastic stuff? If you need some help with that, if you want to talk about that, I'm more than willing to talk about that with you. If we have a few pastors on staff, we'd all be willing to sit down with you and discuss things. But please, don't be plastic. We're going to sing a song right now. And I would love for this song to be a prayer. Just, just allow it to come down to this point, right in here. And help push some of that plastic nonsense up to the surface and give that to Christ. Christ.